All right, so we are in week 17 of our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are into chapter 15. We're going to finish this entire book next week, so that's pretty awesome. We'll be in chapter 15 this week and next week. We'll kind of finish it next week. It's, there's a lot going on here that I don't want to rush through, but Paul is kind of changing the subject. We've been talking about, like, for weeks now, um, since chapter 12, about the gifts and uh, how, what it means to love each other using our gifts. We've talked about how what we do when we worship together and how the love thing is super important in that scenario as well. We've talked about all this stuff, and then Paul, at the end of this letter, is going to kind of change the subject. It's not totally unrelated. But the reason he's bringing up the resurrection here is because it appears as though this church, at least in particular, has stopped believing that in their future bodily resurrection, that after they die, they'll be resurrected, okay? And that's a horrible, horrible thing to lose, which we'll get to eventually why that's such a loss. But I, and I realized that it would have been amazing if I had been such an amazing strategic planner if I, this had landed on Easter 50 days ago, but it di I didn't. I am not that guy, all right? So, so here we are, but it's cool because this is Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I missed that too until Pete reminded me this morning. He said, happy birthday. I said, it's not my birthday. He said, he drug it out for a minute and tortured me, and, and then he said, it was it's Pentecost. This is the birthday of the church. So, so happy birthday, everybody. And I've ruined it now for Pete. He can't do this to anyone else this morning. All right. So, so this is all on purpose is what I'm trying to say. No, I'm not. Um, this, I, I like the idea that we're talking about the resurrection, not on Easter, because it reminds us, I think, uh, that this is not just an important thing for one day out of the year. This is the bedrock of our faith. This is the central thing. This is the, the, the it, we, we tend to kind of emphasize the cross and the death of Jesus. Jesus died for my sins. That's the, the thing that Christians often say over and over again. In fact, probably before I just said that, if I had asked a lot of you, what, can you give me the gospel in one sentence, you probably would have said some form of that sentence. Jesus died for my sins. And that is true that he died for your sins. But there's way more going on here than just Jesus dying for your sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And had he not risen from the dead, we'd, we would have the silliest religion on the planet. We would be wasting our time. And Paul would will actually say we should be pitied because we're doing some weird stuff up in here. I mean, we believe some weird stuff. We say some weird things. We're standing here singing to a God we can't see. We're not singing. I mean, if we're singing for each other's benefit only, then we need better singers right? But we're not. There's something else happening, right? There's something else going on in this room other than a bunch of weird people getting together and singing songs together to the air. We are singing to a living, risen king. Our God lives and he's present, and that makes this all incredibly meaningful instead of super weird and lame, right? And so that's what Paul's going to get to here. So he starts off here, chapter 15, 1 through 11, He says, by the way, there's notes. I always forget to say this at the beginning. Uh, there's notes back there on that table and the table near the door if you'd like them. Also online in the description, you can click on that and get the same notes, all right? 
So he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, that's Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Okay, so he begins by telling them to remember the gospel, right? Unless, of course, they just aren't Christians at all in which they need to believe the gospel, okay? I love that he adds that little caveat in there. And then he's going to explain what he means by the gospel, right? By saying, or, or, or by, by giving us this short little creed. There's a pattern here in this sentence. It was sort of either the beginning of a creed that the church adopted or he was reciting a creed that they already kind of begun to adopt. And this is something the very, very early church did all the way out through church history is trying to distill what the Christian faith is down to short, little, easy to remember, easy to pass on statements, right? And this is one of those. You see that in verse 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what Paul considers to be the most basic facts of the Christian faith, okay? To deny these facts is to deny the faith, okay? You need to understand that that's how important this stuff is. This is of first importance. This is, if you deny these simple things, that Jesus died and was raised on the third day, then you have denied the faith, okay? So that's why it's important that we distill these things down, because you ask, what is Christianity? What's the Christian faith all about? If anybody ever asks you that, just quote them the scripture. Out of all the other things that the church in Corinth and any church needs to believe, these are the most important. This is the touchstone of the Christian faith, it's what we believe. I think it's cool that this, this reminds me of where it was, how Paul starts this and chapter, starts the whole letter in chapter 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is simplicity. It's an art form. It's so simple. He says, I came to you. Now, there's some reasons for that. We talked about some of those things. They were really into like really smart uh, intellectual teachers, and they were competitive over who their favorite teacher was and who was the most famous, who was the best, and they would sort of divide up into camps over that. And so Paul comes and he says, look, I'm not coming to you with any of that mess. I'm not playing that game. I'm not doing that thing. He intentionally simplified his teaching down to simply Jesus and him crucified. I think this is really, really important for us in our situation right now as a church especially the church in America. 
What does it mean to keep your eye on the prize? We talked about, there were several like, exhortations last week about what, you're, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you considering? What are you meditating on? What are, what are the things in the world, like when you see these awful tragedies happening in the world, where do you look to for help? And that's going to determine how you feel and whether or not you have hope or not. And it's the same thing for us. And Paul says the prize, the central thing, the most important thing is Christ and him crucified. We have new causes with their associated outrage popping up almost every day now. Have you noticed this? Some of them are real things, some of them are not. And listen, every side of every aisle has their own version of this. It's not just a conservative thing or a liberal thing. We've all got constant, constant barrage of a new cause and a new outrage for that you should be really concerned about. You need to give your time and your passion to this. This is the most important thing. The Internet is really good at telling you what the thing of first importance is. And it's always a different thing. And it used to be like once every six months you get a new thing. And now it feels like every day. I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels that way. Everyone always has an opinion about how you should change the world by speaking out on social media or donating or volunteering or writing your government representatives or voting a certain way or protesting or cheering or raising awareness or canceling someone or just all around getting angry. Why aren't you angry? And don't you ever feel like you're sort of out of anger? You just sort of tapped out, like you feel like you want to get angry, but you just sort of can't because you've been so angry about other things all day. And so now here you are, and you just tapped out. I got nothing in the barrel left. All I have is just flatlined emotions, and I'm just overwhelmed, overstimulated by the causes. This is inside the church, too. This is not just in the world. I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure cancel culture started with Christians. We love canceling people over all sorts of stuff. So we can't just point the finger. I think the answer to this, I think Paul would say, we need to keep our eyes focused on Christ, focused on the matters of first importance. We need to know among you except Jesus, know nothing, excuse me, know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This means, number one, spending the bulk of your material and emotional resources on things that are gospel issues. Don't waste your passion. Don't waste your outrage on things that are, that are not central to the gospel. Just don't do it. This means maintaining a sense of proportion about the non-essentials, which honestly means, part of that means having a sense of humor. Humor keeps your sense of proportion intact. And number three, this means remembering that the ultimate answer to what's wrong with the world is actually the gospel. Everything that's really broken, the real problems in the world, the real kind of existential crises in the world, the answer to them is ultimately going to be the gospel. It is the bedrock of what we have and who we are. And reaching outside of that for solutions is always going to lead to more brokenness, not less. This is exactly what Paul is doing with the Corinthian church. He's reminding them of the resurrection of Christ and reminding them that this is the most basic level of Christian belief. And he's reminding them the whole church agrees on this. That's why he gives them the list 
of all the people that Jesus appeared to. It's not to that's not a great apologetic. Like if you're not a Christian and you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, telling people that, well, lots of people saw him just tells them that lots of people believed it. It doesn't make them believe it. It's not, a, it's not going to convince anybody. But what it does say emphatically is that the church has always believed this, that Jesus rose from the dead. And to deny Jesus' resurrection is to deny the Christian faith that the church has always held to. And that's a big deal. And so you hold on to these things because you're in a long line of other people that were better than us that believe these things. We have eyewitnesses, brothers and sisters, family members going back to the very beginning who have believed this. That gives me a lot of confidence. So let's read on, verse 12 to 19. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this life is all there is, if this life is all you have, if your only hope is that this life will be great and will turn out okay, and that you'll find joy and happiness and perfect peace in this life, then you and I are to be pitied more than anyone else because God help us if this is all there is. I mean, look around. If you're waiting for this to be everything that you dreamed it could be, for this to be the best, the pinnacle of your existence, can only happen in this life while your heart is still beating and there's air in your lungs, then you're a fool. That's what he's saying. And we should all just feel sorry for you if that's all you got. There's more to this life than this. And we know this because Jesus was raised. This is Paul's theological point of origin. His encounter on the Damascus Road with the risen Christ and the implications of that on his own identity is the basis of how he thinks, leads, prays, teaches, and everything else. Paul's on the road to Damascus while going to persecute Christians when he encountered the risen Christ who they had some kind of conversation. And Paul was like, oh. It wasn't an encounter with the dead Christ that changed him. It was an encounter with the risen, speaking, present, standing in his way on the road Christ, blinded by that Jesus. And he said, oh, this is the real thing. And he realized, I've died with him. And I've been raised with him. And I'm in him and he is in me. And this whole thing about being in Christ came to Paul somewhere in that space, that place. He realized it. And it changed him forever. That becomes the basis of everything he ever says. He's a one-note guy. He doesn't seem like it because he uses lots and lots of words and very long run-on sentences. 
But he has, he's got one sermon, Paul. Everything you read from him comes from this moment, this one thing. I encountered the risen Christ, and he is reigning and ruling forever, and he's in me, and I'm in him, and everything Paul ever says goes through that filter. Look at verse 50, no, excuse me, verse 20 to 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he says, if he's not been raised, we're all just fools and hopeless with no hope. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I think this is just after some of the most beautiful theology you will ever read. Jesus is the first fruit. Let's just unpack this. What's that mean? It's not a word we throw around a lot. Oh, I see you have your first fruits of the year. You know, no one's talking that way anymore. What does that mean? There's a lot of Old Testament references to this idea of first fruits. And what they meant by that was the first fruits was that the first bit of the crop, first bit of the harvest you get out of your crop. And, and it's the a strongest indication of what your crop is going to be like. So it's really important. You look at that and it tells you what the rest is going to be. Wow, I've got some really good tomatoes here. This is going to, that, that suggests that the rest of the tomato crop is going to be good. Or this is a really puny uh, tomato, uh, I might be in trouble, right? And what they would do is they collect the first fruits of their harvest and they would give that to God. Okay, it was a really important part of their worship. That's where, part of where we get the idea of tithing from. It's a whole other teaching. But here Paul takes this and he uses it as a metaphor for Jesus. He says the resurrection was the first fruits of our resurrection. We died with Christ and we were raised with Christ. We can see his bodily resurrection and see that as the guarantee of our own future resurrection. He ties them together. If Christ was raised, then we're raised. Why? Because we're in Christ. If we're not going to be raised, then Christ wasn't raised. It is that connected. I think that's profound. We are that connected that if one is true, then the other is true. Where you go, he goes, including the grave. Look at verse 20. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death. Now, who's that man? That's Adam. Remember Adam in the garden? That joker who brought sin into the world? Thanks a lot. Don't get too cocky because you would have to. Don't get too full of yourself. That's part of Adam's curse is that you start getting overconfident and think you're fine when you're not, right? So Adam's that first one, right? We're going to see this comparison that Paul's going to do, and it's really helpful. The second Adam, or the second man, is Jesus. So he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So, you, so a lot of people have a hard time with original sin. The idea that 
Adam, because of one guy back, one of my ancestors, way, way, way back at the beginning, blew it for everybody. That seems unfair. And it is. Like before you were born, you were infected. And you, you had no say in it. You were just born that way. You were born in sin. But there's a, another side to that unfairness. It's also through one man came your salvation, Jesus Christ. And that was also terribly unfair. But not unfair in your direction. It was unfair, eternally, divinely unfair, exponentially unfair in Christ's direction. And so you don't complain about Adam without exulting in the fact that Christ came. Because he's the one that stood as one man, just as Adam, through one man came sin, through one man came your salvation. So thank God that one man could save us all, right? So the first Adam brought sin in and into his descendants, but Jesus brought life. So just remember this, Adam equals death, Christ equals life. Paul comes back around to this in verses 45 to 49. Yes, I'm skipping a lot that I will not skip next week. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As with the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the man of dust is Adam. I love that picture. The man of dust. I just immediately just want to cough. Like, <clears throat> just, you ever feel like you've just been sucking on dust all week? Like spiritual dust is dry, and it just dries you out inside. That's what the man of dust is. I think it's important to recognize that Paul's not describing just two ways of living, which is how we tend to think about it. And it's the one thing, if I could just destroy in the way you think and in the way you feel about look at yourself, is that this idea that Christianity is just about having two ways of living. You either live as a good person or live as a bad person. You live according to the kingdom's rules or live according to Satan's rules. You're either of heaven or, you know, you're, you look holy, you're a saint, or you're a sinner. And this kind of thing of like, it's just about doing good and getting better as a person. And Christianity just happens to be the method you've chosen that you think is the best way to become a best person. That is not Christianity. It is absolutely not the thing. We tried that. It's called the law. That's what the Old Testament is about. It's about everybody trying to be better people and meeting God's standard of perfection and missing the mark every single time. That's what sin means, what the word means. It means missing the mark. You aimed at it and you missed it over and over again. And so becoming a Christian isn't just about having meetings where you learn to be a better person. If that's all this is, there are other religions that do a better job of it of convincing people to be better. So if that's what you're after, you're in the wrong game. That's not what Christianity is. It's what Paul discovered when he met Jesus. Paul was already playing that game. And he was better at it, he would say, than everybody else. He was the best 
as keeping the law of everybody else. And then he met Jesus, and he went, wait a minute, I'm playing the wrong game altogether. Paul is saying that if you're made of dust, then you can't be made alive. You're dust. What you're made of? Dirt. Dead dirt. You need to be made of different stuff altogether. Jesus put it like he, he said you need to be reborn, born again. That old phrase from the 60s and 70s was so right. Have you been born again? That's a better question than do you know where you're going when you die? It's weirder, but it's more the gospel to say, have you been born again? And the people will react to you the same way they reacted to Jesus when he said it. What are you talking about? Can I go back to my mother's womb and come out again? No, man, I'm talking about another kind of birth. Let me explain it to you. You, you, you don't just need to be improved. You don't just need to be a better person and do better things. You are made of dust and you are dead. You just don't know it. You need to be recreated into different stuff. Instead of the stuff of dust, you need to be made into the stuff of Christ, the stuff of heaven. Becoming a Christian is not about adopting a new religious lifestyle, a new set of beliefs, a new group of weird friends, and attending meetings once a week. What we're doing here is far more mysterious. It's about being spoken into existence by Jesus. Again, I love this image of Jesus being there. Colossians talks about it. John talks about it in the first few verses of John, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there he is at creation before there was anything. It's just him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Christ speaks the world into existence at creation. And he speaks you and I into existence. The first Adam, boof, there you are. And he breathes life into your lungs. He made you in your mother's womb. He formed you. He crafted you. But then here Jesus is again, now in the flesh. And he stands before you, man or woman of dust. And he speaks again. And he speaks you, recreates you, lets the man, man or woman of dust die, and recreates you into his own image. That's what's happening when you become a Christian. It's not just you ho-hum walking down an aisle and saying some words. It's a creative miracle. You are being spoke, re-spoken into existence by Christ himself. He breathes his spirit just like Adam had the breath of God breathed into him where he came alive. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, who is the pneuma, the breath of God, is breathed into you, and you are made alive by the Spirit. It's a, no small thing when you become a Christian. So what this adds up to is that you're, if you're a Christian, you're not a sinner. Sit with that for a minute. I know. We'll talk about the but in just a second. Just think about it. If you're a Christian, you are not a sinner. You're a saint. Well, I don't feel like one. Stop it. Just receive it for a second. 
Tell, the law, the inner, you, tell your inner lawyer to be quiet and just let that settle over you. You are not a sinner, you're a saint. That's what Paul found on the road to Damascus. At least one of the things Jesus said to him was, this is not who you are anymore. So stop it. He had a massive shift, an eternal shift in identity in that moment. So when you sin, I'm acknowledging that you do, it's out of character for you. It is incongruent with who you are. That is the difference. When you're not a Christian, you are not a saint no matter what you do. And when you do something good, it is out of character for you. And for the Christian, when the Christian, you've been declared by God, not just in some kind of pat you on the head, patronizing way, like this will really motivate you, but it's not really true. He actually makes you, recreates you, lets the sinner die and makes you into a saint and then calls you holy. And so whenever you sin, it's kind of weird. Like, what are you doing? That's not, what, that's not what saints do. It's like a fish. It's like telling a Christian not to sin is like telling a fish to swim. You're like, yeah, that's what fish do. We just swim. And so when you sin, it's like a fish out of water. You know, if you've ever gone fishing and you pull a fish out in water, like I, I love aquarium fish. I don't have an aquarium right now because I just got, I, I burn out on things. It'll be back, don't worry. Uh, but, but in the water, they're just beautiful and majestic and just flow, and it's this really soothing thing, and it's just wonderful. It's just de-stressing. It's like, but as soon as you take a fish and you yank it out of that water and put it on the bottom of your boat or on the dock, it looks ridiculous. It's flopping around. <laughs> right? And you're like, whoa, this thing is like the weirdest animal ever made and then you put it back in the water and it's like you know know, Bach is playing again right this is what it's like for the Christian when you step off and start acting the fool as southerners like to say and start acting in rebellion against God and sinning this is what it's like it's what it looks like from heaven it's like a fish sitting on the dock going why you just get in the water like you're a fish and this is how Paul always, when Paul tells people to like, you know, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't lose your temper, um, act right, all the act right list that Paul gives, that's his attitude. He's indignant. He can't believe. He's like, just get in the water. You're a fish. Swim. Why aren't you swimming? That's his attitude. It's not do better so that Christ will forgive your sins and you'll go to heaven. Because don't you know that that's what Christianity is about? It's about being better and doing better over time. And it's not. That's not what he says. He says, be better because you are. It's who you are. Sin is out of character for the Christian. I think we make a mistake when we conceive of our Christian walk like starting at zero, or maybe at negative, if you have a bad self-image, right? You kind of think, well, I started out at like negative 10, and by the time I get to heaven, I got to be at 100%. And so I'm working my way, and hopefully it's a long slope upward. Sometimes I have bad days, and I dip down, and then I dip back up, and hopefully just the trend, at least, is upwards till I get 
to the end where I'm a really good person. But that's not, it's, it's, that's not it. It's not it at all. Because what God does is this weird, mysterious thing that's hard to even explain, which is he starts with the end, and he says, you are holy, not you're going to be. Don't be mistaken. He doesn't say one day you will be. He says, you are. I have declared you to be now. And he starts with the end and says, work your way forward to the start. Right? That's why I always say you're becoming what you already are in Christ. And it's, I know it's hard. And if you're sitting there, man, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're right, I am. Just read your Bible. It's all over the place. It's hard to explain until you start walking that path and you find that you blow it and you sin and you make a mess and then you discover the grace, the really discover the grace of God in that, that place and you discover that he's not angry at you. He's just looking at you like, what are you doing? Why? This is not who you are. This is how we raise kids, by the way. How we should raise kids. Just say to them, why are you lying to me? That's not who you are. It's weird. It's strange. It's not expected. And I'm going to discipline you, not because you've got to pay for your sin, because you made daddy angry because you sinned against him, but you discipline them because you remind them of who they are. Act in accordance with who God says you are. We also need to learn the converse, which is that if you're not a Christian, you are not a saint. doesn't mean you can't do good things. We get in trouble a lot because Christians act like non-Christians can't ever do anything good, and that's ridiculous. <laughs> Non-Christians do amazing, great, wonderful, good things that please God all the time. Okay, but it's weird. It's out of character. And it does not earn you sainthood. It does not earn you a place with God at all because you are made of dust and you need to be remade into the stuff of heaven. And until you're made of the stuff of heaven, there is no entry into heaven. Only things made of heaven get into heaven. And you've got to be made of that stuff to get there. That's the only way. This is the gospel. We need to get better at reminding each other of who we are. We have, the church is well known for being good at telling people how to act. We are great at that. We take Paul's list and we eliminate the in Christ stuff that he always says before and after, and we just throw the list around and say, stop acting this way. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, why would you expect the world not to act like the world? Instead, tell the world the truth about who they are. They need to be recreated. And we need to do the same thing with each other. I know who you are because I've read my Bible. You're in the image of God. You're in the image of Christ. You're not a man or a woman of dust. You're not in the image of the man of dust, as Paul says. Your struggle is not primarily about becoming a better person. It's about learning to believe what God says about you. And, of course, then you become a better person. This is why Paul says it's of first importance. Not only is it the most basic thing that determines a Christian from a non-Christian, it is the thing that drives everything the Christian does from that point forward. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. So let's stop there. I'm going to start getting into next week's territory if I keep going. But next week we'll look at 
how this determines your future and determines what your hope is. That when you're established in this, you can look forward to your future and to one another's future. That's the fun part to think about. We're family forever. That's some serious implications. Maybe we need to have some discussions, right? Maybe we need to talk over some stuff that's between us because we're going to be family forever. I'm going to know Vic for thousands of years. I'm happy about that. I'm not saying that as... I realized it came out and like a, it was not being sarcastic. I'm excited, you know, about hanging out with Vic and, and Alan too, right? Even Alan. He said it first. I didn't say it. So that's kind of where we're going next week, kind of the, the, the implications of this on our future and our future together um, at the return of Christ. All right, so let's stand together and pray. Lord, I thank you for this reminder of what's really important. What the most important thing is. God, I do pray that we would all be able to keep our eyes on that thing. God, as we seek justice and seek peace in this world and seek to bring it to others, God, I pray that our hope would not be in that, but our hope would be in the resurrected Christ. And God, I pray that <clears throat> we would be a church that represents the true gospel, not just self-improvement, self-actualization, but Lord, that we would represent the miraculous recreating Christ to the world. God, that we would seek to see other people <clears throat> have the same spirit of life breathed into them that's been breathed into us. That the old man of dust would die and that we would be raised again with Christ. God, help us to speak that word to other people and help us first to speak it to each other. God, that we would not ever make the mistake of defining other people by their sin, defining other people by their weaknesses, defining them by their worst moments, but instead that we would define other people by what you say about them. So God, I pray that we would have a transformative picture of each other and that we would be encouragers to one another from that place. Lord, I pray that you would build your church. God, thank you for starting this church back in Pentecost. Sometimes it looks like just a horrible mess. But you have declared about her that she is the hope of the world. Not because we're better or we act better, but because we've been transformed. We've been remade, reborn. <clears throat> we are your family. We're your kids. So God, I pray that I, that identity would become the defining identity, 
not just for Living Hope Church, but for your church in this world. God, we want to represent that well. And so God, I pray that anyone here is suffering from not being able to get their hearts around this. God, especially those who are not Christians. God, who still just either believe that they're good enough or think they're just never going to be good enough, so why come to God? God, I pray that you would reveal to them the truth about you, that they would have the same encounter with the risen Christ that Paul did. That they would see that you are alive and you are here and you are with them and you are standing ready to breathe life into them. God, I pray that this encounter would be for everyone. In the name of Jesus. Amen.